Howdy folks, this is Scott Parker and you're listening to episode 29 of the ZappaCast for April of 2016. We actually have uh, our deluxe, uh, full-blooded American, Anglo-American roundtable, I guess is how you would say, from uh, Chicago, Illinois, Mr. Scott Fisher. Hello, hello. Hello. And uh, from uh, somewhere a lot nearer to Brighton than I am, Andrew Greenaway. Greetings, all. And, uh, of course... Where would we be without him, the Professor Mick Eakers? Hello, everyone. And from Portland, Oregon, to you, our very new uh, special panelist here on the uh, on the ZappaCast, a uh, longtime Zappa fan, and uh, you'll know his writing work from such publications as Tamershi Duane and Society Pages. Please welcome to the show Matthew Gallagher. Hey, guys. Hey, there he is. Nice so, to be here. So welcome. I wanted to ask you, Matthew, um, as as usual for these shows, we we will go around and sort of tell our Zappa tale, and I know that you have a uh, a long and varied history with uh, Zappa's universe, and um, I guess we'll just start with, how long have you been a fan? Well, since probably about uh, 1979, 1978. Yeah. And so, what happened for me, uh, you want me to kind of elaborate here? Or we can yeah, we can sure, sure. First? No, no, you could go right ahead. In uh, basically freshman year of high school, I started playing electric bass. Yeah. And I discovered Jaco Pistorius, and, uh, you know, to, to this day, still uh, my favorite bass player. Oh, yes. And then um, I had a, uh, a friend that I met that year who was new to my school, and... Uh, his best friend was Pat O'Hearn's little brother. So, huh. Patrick O'Hearn, well, the, the O'Hearns uh, lived in Portland at that time. So, Patrick O'Hearn went to high school in Portland, Oregon. And uh, he's Pat's 10 years older than uh, his little brother and myself. But uh, so we ended up over at this house and we're listening to Shoot Your Booty, and then I heard the song Rubber Shirt. Yes. And uh, at that point, instantaneously, Zappa kind of went from some, you know, comic idiot uh, <laughs> to like, whoa, yeah. better, better circle back and, and look at this a little bit more closely. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I got live in New York with Perth Lagoon, and uh, I was just completely blown away, uh, both by Patrick's bass playing, but also at that point know really opened up to what was going on with Zappa's music and kind of uh caught the fever of the challenge of trying to understand you know what I was hearing and why sometimes it was frustrating Robert O'Hearn uh, it was his 16th birthday party so we went over to his parents house and Pat happened to be in town and I just remember them jamming on some Led Zeppelin song and, and Pat had that uh Face that that's, you can see the picture of on uh, Live in New York, and of course Baby Snakes and that Sunburst Precision. I think I'm not sure. And he's got the. I remember seeing the red LED light on the, the preamp uh-huh. spoke and all that work on his face, and just sitting there as like you know 16, and just my mouth completely on the floor. Yeah. Led uh, Zeppelin, you know, wow, never sounded so good. So basically, graduated from high school, was getting really into Zappa, and um, then uh, I was going to go to Mexico, and uh, just for the summer, and just kind of hang out with a friend, I'd saved up a little money, 
And then right before I was going to go, I got a call from New York, and it was Robert O'Hearn. And uh, he said, hey, I'm in this pop band, and uh, it's this guy, this violinist named El Shankar, and the drummer is Jerry Cucarulo, and uh, wow. you, should, you need a bass player, you should come out and audition. Yeah. And uh, you have to understand, that I, I mean, I, I love music and I love playing bass, but I don't have any aptitude, I'm not anywhere you know, qualified for that. <laughs> but I just thought, well, I can go to Mexico with my friend and spend all my, you know, paper route money drinking beer on the beach. Or sure. <laughs> I could go to New York and meet some cool people and just do that instead. So I, I went to New York and uh, so Shankar had a band uh, at that time called Sadhu. Yep. And um, the songs, those songs later, a lot of those songs came out on an ECM record. Uh, a couple, there's a couple different ones, and they're they're actually I think pretty poor albums. Um, one one has Steve Vai on it and Drum Machine, and uh, I can't remember the title offhand, but those ECM records actually were pop tunes that had lyrics to them. Yeah. And uh, so basically I ended up hanging out all summer on uh, 39th and 8th Avenue in this music building with Jerry Cucarulo and, and Robert Ahern and El Shankar. And, uh, <laughs> I never really played with El Shankar because we, we'd just rehearse all the time. You know, he never actually even got his violin out. Yeah. Um, they, before I got there, they played some gigs around town and stuff. And then it kind of all fell apart. And um, But it was a very interesting summer, and I spent part of that time staying in Shankar's uh, apartment. Uh, his, his, and, uh, I don't know if they were married or not, Caroline. Mm-hmm. During that time, uh, Jerry Cucarulo, had, who plays drums, had you know Warren's little brother, obviously. Mm-hmm. He had... Uh, gotten to audition for Zappa and he, he didn't make the audition obviously but he was telling me all this theoretical stuff about irrational rhythms and if you can have a quarter note triplet over two beats why can't you have a uh, five beats over two beats and you can subdivide it and my brain was just imploding <laughs> and so that experience really kind of when I came back to Portland um that really got me diving into trying to really understand all this stuff on a theoretical level and that that of course later led to my uh, Tamersha Duin articles called Statistical Density. I I will just mention before I forget, so I did have dinner at the Cucarulos that was uh, was an interesting experience because uh, it connected a lot of things. There was it's a small Italian neighborhood uh, in the kind of far side of Brooklyn and uh, so Warren was a you know a hometown hero, and Missing Persons was still big at that time. It's about 1983, I think. Yeah. And so you just walk around, you go to the, the butcher shop, and there'd be like you know Missing Persons poster. <laughs> and uh, I remember having dinner with the Cucarulos, and uh, Warren's sitar that Frank had given given them was on this dresser in their dining room. They had this beautiful portrait of Frank. Uh, color portrait that was like framed with oak filigree and everything 
And it was you know, pretty big. And Frank's got his pinky finger in his ear, staring down over the there. Uh, it, was, it was interesting.
Such a little robot queen Making little noises full of things to life But they're really just so full of me All the dead girls are blundering Why do they act that way? Yes, yes indeed. And uh, so in the beginning of that book, there's a little forward by Steve Vai, and it basically says, you know, if you have any questions, write me a letter. Mm -hmm. So I did, and I had all these questions. And um, I go to my mailbox, and there's a package, and in it uh, is a book called uh, Modern Rhythmic Notation by Gardner Reed. And in it is a note from Steve Vai, and it says, uh, hey, I still use this book, so when you're done reading it, will you please send it back to me? <laughs> and, uh, That's fabulous. <laughs> yeah, so, and this is, you know, kind of when he was just starting, he did Flexible, the first, you know, home-baked thing, and he'd advertise that in Society Pages. And mm -hmm. uh, I later ended up in uh, his tour bus with, uh, Mike Neely and Rob Samler, yeah, and that was one of the nice things that Steve said was uh, he was really grateful to Rob and Society Pages for he basically said that that fan magazine kickstarted his solo career because he sold that flexible album through there. Yeah, that's true. That's right. That's right. And uh, yeah, so uh, that time uh, Steve was not famous and he's very accessible super nice I sent him the book back with a couple bucks tucked in there for postage and I sent him a transcription I had done of Pink Walks Amok mm -hmm. and uh, a few weeks later I get another package in my mailbox and uh, it is the uh, I forget the name of you know these uh, Arco Swill Munchkin Music scores they had that weird onion skin printing style yes uh, so there is the, the chart in Frank's handwriting for Pink Walks the Muck and it's it's uh, autographed on there from Steve saying something basically like you know 
yeah, keep going, you know, good job. That's great. I can't remember, but uh, so I have that score, uh, which you know, was never commercially available, so that was pretty cool. That's awesome. Then, yeah, thanks. I thought it was pretty cool, too. It's definitely very kind of life-affirming. Um, and then, so then in the mid-'80s, I had this incredible idea that nobody had ever thought of. <laughs> I'm going to have a Frank Zappa cover band. <laughs> I've transcribed hundreds of pages of his music. And so I got these friends of mine, and uh, we decided, this is in 1985, 1986. Mm-hmm. And we decided, uh, since we were all anti-drug, we decided to call it weasel dust after <laughs> the vice appearance of Frank Zappa. Mm-hmm. Where he refers to cocaine, cocaine is weasel dust. Weasel dust. That's right. So, I had this Zappa cover band called Weasel Dust. And at that time, I was going to community college studying music. And I was just obsessed with all these irrational rhythms. And then there's this, this guy with like uh, long, kind of uh, glam rock metal LA hairstyle. And he starts playing the drums, and he's like, "Hi, I'm Mark. Blah blah blah. What are you What are you doing?" And I'm like, "Well, I'm I'm trying to work on this concept. You know, if you can have three over two beats, why can't you have four or seven or thirteen or eleven? And, sure. And he's like, "Oh, let me see that." And he goes, "Da da da." And he's like, "Oh my God, I can't I can't play that. That's difficult. Mm-hmm. I can always play everything. Uh, you know." And then he's like, "Whoa!" Uh, essentially, he's just very gifted drummer, uh, he's currently the drummer for Pink, he's oh, wow. Foreigner, Foreigner and, and Cher, and uh, a whole slew of people, he's kind of a studio, LA studio guy, and, uh, and a big rock band touring drummer. Yeah. So, but at that time he said, uh, you know, nothing's ever been difficult for me with music, you know, it's just I have this natural gift, and he was kind of like, uh, taken aback, just like, oh, like a little musical crisis or something yeah so he's like dude we, we have to figure this shit out <laughs> so we, we we had a duo called R15 which is named after the 15th bar of the black page which has this very difficult nested irrational rhythm and uh later when uh when Mike Neely Beer for Dolphins played in Portland he had this uh ad lib um raffle and he wanted volunteers to come up to do obscure Frank Zappa questions <laughs> and so I was able to pull out what is the irrational polyrhythm in 415 of the black page that gave him a good chuckle <laughs> that is um, great so uh, so I had this this duo called Bar 15 and uh, we learned the black page and I learned the melody on my bass and he played it on the drums and we got pulled in a friend of him uh, his to to do these chord pads mm-hmm. uh, behind it, and uh, we played at the Oregon Yacht Club. That was our one gig. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so, um, so he, being a very nice person, and knowing that I was obsessed with Frank Zappa and all enthusiastic, and he had all these music connections in LA and everything, as a present, he gave me this ten or twelve record bootleg set in a mystery box. And I'm like, cool. And then I I'm take all the um, the records out, and in there is a copy of Society Pages from Norway. Yeah. 
So this is 1986. And that was the beginning of the end because that was the pre-internet connection to all the other freaks. Sure. And in that one issue was an interview with Zapstitute. Yep. Oh, I remember Zapstitute. I can say that I've been a a fan of of Mops and Morgan since 1986. (laughs) That's great. So... Then I'm like, oh my god, these guys have a Zappa cover band. <laughs> and then I got a cassette tape of it, and then I was like, oh my god, these guys are seriously good. Yeah. And so then um, I start writing all these people, just everybody randomly. I don't even know what some of these countries are. Uh, I'm just writing all these letters. You know, I meet Andrew Greenaway. Etc. Etc. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one of then uh, there was this letter uh, from some lonely guys in East Germany. <laughs> That's and it, it's kind of a famous letter, but it's this kind of plea from the West. You know, please send us some Zappa. We we can't. It's very hard to get a hold of this. And uh, so at that time, you could not send cassette tapes. Uh, Across the Iron Curtain, uh, basically because there could be encoded computer information on there, whatever. So sure. I would go to these used record stores and buy vinyl Zappa and then ship it to them. Oh, that's great. And then in 1989, summer of 89, so I get this, I get this letter from Peter Gers, and hmm. Peter's English was was never too good. Yeah. And Back then, it was, you know, quite humorous. <laughs> and uh, I, I later was told, I traveled with the Muffin Men, and they told me that when they would get letters from Peter Gers, they would save them, and they would bring them to rehearsal, and then they would improvise a, a Zappa meltdown, and they would read them in the Queen's English. <laughs> if that good. And so I got this letter from Peter uh, in his famous bad English, and it essentially, well, I think what he was trying to say is like, next next summer, we're gonna have a kegger, we're gonna drink some beer, <laughs> we're gonna listen to some Frank Zappa, and uh, you should come. And he said, I know it's a long ways away. Uh, I know it costs a lot of money, but if you want to bring your girlfriend, you know, whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll put you up, feed you. But the way he actually wrote it was, Dear Matthew, for you, girlfriends and all will be free. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I was like, okay, well, you can't turn that down. So <laughs> uh, I wrote the United States Embassy, and I, I started working on my visa. And I'm thinking like, okay, I'm going to East Germany for the weekend to drink beer with somebody I've never met. <laughs> and then that fall, uh, the, the wall opens up. But in the meantime, I'm thinking, okay, if I'm going to East Germany for the weekend, I'm gonna, I'm, I should build a trip out of this. And I've never, I've never traveled by myself. I've never really been out of the U.S. to speak of, you know. So then I, <laughs> then I'm thinking like, well, there's these, these Zaxi Duke guys. Uh, and sure. so I called them up, and I got I got one phone number. And the other thing, not only is there no internet, 
or maybe there's like a fledgling email. You know? Yeah. But I didn't have email. Long distance phone calls cost a sh- <laughs> shit ton of money back then, and so I have this one phone number, and I've I've, uh, I've written some of these apps to these guys, and I get a phone number, and then I call that guy, and then he's like, "Oh, you're Matt Gallagher?" Yeah. He says, "Really, you?" Wow, I got all these questions for you. So 20 minutes later, I'm like, hey, well, can you give me so-and-so's number? No, but I can give you this other band member's phone number who has their number. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I ended up talking to all these people, and uh, I remember my phone bill was $300. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, yeah, 1990 dollars. Yeah. And uh, so I, on that trip, uh, I went to East Germany, I went to Zappanale number one, and I went to uh, Umeå, which is 10, 10 hours north of Stockholm by train, uh, to meet some of the guys from, Z- from Zapstitute, and I got to play with Mots, and uh, I actually have a recording of that somewhere, and uh, I stayed with Morgan uh, in Stockholm, uh, they were all super, super nice.
that sure. that kind of got me connected and met all these really great people. Uh, so then, uh, in the meantime, uh, I was transcribing tons and tons of this music, and so I hooked up with Mark Ziegenhagen, yeah, who's a keyboard player. He went to Berkeley, and he played with Joe Travers. Uh, there was a Zappa Day in Berkeley that Joe organized. I have that on video somewhere. And they actually performed my transcription of the Purple Lagoon. Uh, <laughs> so that was kind of cool to see Zeke Hagen and, and uh, Joe Travers and some other guys uh, using my chart as uh, their arrangement. And That's then, great. so Mark and I traded tons and tons of cheap music, and he had some other guys, uh, Genovese, I can't remember the guy's first name. There's like a couple other guys that were doing a lot of transcribing. Uh, so Mark and I have about a thousand pages of transcriptions between the two of us and some other friends. And so one story that was when Mark later went on to tour with uh, Mike Keneally, and I, I got to meet Mark uh, when Keneally came up to the Northwest. And, uh, but there's one funny story, uh, and that is. So Mark Ziegenhagen ended up playing uh, for Zappa's Universe. Yes. And so uh, I get this phone call from Mark uh, at late at night. So it must have been, I don't know, really late there. And he's like, hey, Matt, this is Mark. Uh, we're playing the gig tomorrow. And we were rehearsing today. You know, I'm, this is, I might be a little bit loose on the details about mm-hmm. the timing and so forth. But he's like, um, we were playing our kid, uh, a kid in his arf, and I noticed that we're missing this little triple line that happens. Yeah. And uh, he's like, I want to do that. And I know you transcribed that song, but I don't have the, I'm not at home. I don't have the sheet music. I'm in New York. Can you read me the notes? And so I'm going like, second octave, treble clef, you know, yeah. <laughs> after about 15 minutes, you know, whatever, 10 minutes, I read him the line. So the, the recording of the Kidman's R for Zappa Universe has that line played by Mark Ziegenhagen as transcribed by, and, uh, uh, you know, conveyed over the phone at the last moment. So if that's not an obscure, uh, Almost famous, you know, moment. Yeah. See, what is your what is your uh, name username on Sabatiers? Uh rubber shirt. Yeah. Ah, your rubber shirt. Okay, I've seen you on there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you'll notice that. Um, so I put together some of Mark's stuff a few months back. Mm-hmm. Um. That uh, you know we traded all the stuff, and he he did all this absolutely amazing sequencing that included the whole of Sinister Footwear Ballet. Oh, And that just absolutely blew my mind. So if you haven't downloaded that torrent, you should check that out. Yeah, I definitely will. I haven't yet, actually. It's it's amazing, because what happens, and you can read it's on the thread there, um, you know, for, so we've, we've heard different parts of Sinister's Footwear mm-hmm. uh, played by the rock band. Yeah. And we have the Berkeley Symphony Orchestra but the, the thing is that the Berkeley Symphony Orchestra plays, the sections that we haven't heard are played so slowly and so um, almost rubato. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
also probably out of tune, and uh, I don't want to slug, you know, slag the Berkeley Symphony Orchestra, but when you hear it sequenced in time uh, with a quarter note pulse, that you know would be the context if it was to be played in Zappa's group. Yeah. Uh, there's whole, there's this whole section of all this chordal harmony. Uh, it's just unbelievable. It's like a lost piece because it sounds so much more striking in time and in tune and up to tempo uh, that I just felt like I can't believe um, you know, more people haven't heard that Yeah, and so now it's there I don't know if that's the piece that Dweezil uh, Dweezil was talking about wanting to perform Sinister Footwear with an orchestra so I don't know if he's talking about the full thing and that would be good to hear so I played that yeah yeah, because you know there is the, the there's I think a piano reduction and an orchestral score uh, available for that. I think uh, Mark did the piano reduction for his sequence. So, anyways, yeah, you should make a note to check that out because uh, it's like hearing a, a, a lost album almost. It's pretty cool. <laughs>
So we wanted to talk about there. There would be no way that we could uh, let this episode go um, without um, talking about um, our yeah the Kickstarter and all of the drama in uh, in the Zappaverse, uh, I guess of late. I think a lot of people who'd be listening to this would probably know what's going on and. Uh, I'm sure we have some uh, widely varying opinions uh, as to uh, what we think of the whole thing. Um, I mean, I'll just start by saying I think it's really unfortunate that uh, some of this stuff, you know, is happening. Um, We had Alex on the show in the last episode. Um, He's a great guy. Um, I have no doubt in my mind that he has the best interest of the community and of the, uh, of, of Frank's legacy and the material at heart. But, uh, we should go around the horn and, and, uh, uh, get your take on it, boys. Um, you want to start Mr. Fisher? Where do you come down on this whole thingy? Sure. Um, I, I, it's very hard for me not to be vocal on the subject. It's something near and dear to all of us. Uh, I have found that, um, from my uh, perspective, that at, at the end of the day, it's, it's, I'm very excited. There's there's so much that we've seen in the 30 days that we uh, that the Kickstarter went on that was being released, uh, and so many updates. And I don't think that was all just some type of a, a ruse to just get money out of that, Alex as we talked to him, was very sincere about uh, his Zappa fandom and also his, his um, commitment to the project. Uh, and then seeing from the family perspective, um, I know um, that Andrew had uh, made it over there. And Mick, I believe you were there too, right, for the, um, the London Roxy? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. 
but and then when they did did it in Chicago, you know, Alex had done the Skype afterwards, and I know um, my buddy uh, John Kaminsky had put put that up there um, uh, of the question that everybody wanted the answer to, and um, but nobody wanted to ask. Somebody had the the gall to ask it, and and Alex said that the one part that resonated the most out of his response to me was, uh, let's face it. Here we have four siblings who just lost their mother just a few months ago, mm-hmm. and they're this is they're dealing with this right now, alive and awake, and this is none of his business on the personal end there. And I thought, here, here, that that's exactly the way to, to sum that up. I uh, I lost my grandfather actually in December as well, and I watched my mother, who's one of eight, go through her um, you know family spats over that and mm-hmm. uh, can only imagine when you have a legacy like Frank's on what to do with it. So um, I, I have complete faith, as you mentioned, Scott, uh, as well in Alex and what he'll do with it. And I also was very, very moved by uh, Ahmed's enthusiasm and Divas as well in the um, in that broadcast that they did on that Friday at the end yes. of the Yes, Absolutely. So that I mean, that's my two pennies. It's it's very unfortunate that Weasel and Moon feel the way they do. They have every right to feel the way they do, but um, hopefully, it won't um, shine a, or cast a negative light on the whole thing. I think it's there's a lot of great coming out of this. I agree, um, Mick. Your take? Yeah, um, yeah as I, I posted on Facebook, I, I know exactly how Alex feels when you. Um, you wander into the middle of a Zappa family argument that you didn't even know was there. Like yep. When I went over there and I, I suddenly found out that Louisa wasn't talking to his mum at the time. Mm-hmm. I had no You think everything's cool, so it must be incredibly disconcerting for him. But, yeah, as, as Scott said, you know, you lose your parents, you lose your second parent, and that's the time when you have to sell the house and go through their stuff. Yeah. My dad... It's really hard. It's very hard not to have falling out with your brothers and sisters, and old blood gets drawn, you know drawn back up on that. So I totally understand, and it's really none of our business. And I don't think it's going to get in the way of the film. I, I'm hoping that there'll be some interviews with Dweezil. In fact, Alex said he had already interviewed Dweezil earlier on, so I'm hoping he's going to still have some some part in the film. But otherwise. I'm not over-concerned by it. I don't see it as anywhere like a big drama like some people have been. They like to see a plot, and it's not. It's Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. It's a good scheme, brilliant scheme, raised the money, and Joe's presence throughout it all gives me total faith. Yep. Frankly. I trust Joe implicitly. He's not going to let anybody mess with the material, and if he's behind it, then it's a good thing. And I'm sure all that money is going to go to preserving the archive, and as Alex said, he's now, he's got the publicity that will help him raise the money to actually make the film. And I think he's probably going to go away and do Bill and Ted 3 and then come back and make a great film. Yeah, that's that's actually, that is uh, my feelings exactly. Matthew, do you, what was um, your take on the whole thing? Because you're a long-time Zappa fan like us, so... Well, um, you know, I... My parents are deceased, and I have, you know, lost siblings, and, um, you know, so uh, I have, I like to think that I have empathy and understanding for, uh, you know, a 
any family sure. and all those dynamics. And, you know, it isn't our business. And, uh, you know, the Internet is the Internet. So <laughs> you're always going to get some people that, you know, are going to take that someplace else. Uh, totally unimportant in my mind. You know. However, um, at the same time, uh, I feel like, you know, if you can imagine, you know, the Louvre in Paris. Yeah. And, uh, you know, empty that out. And then, well, the, the descendants of uh, Leonardo da Vinci, they couldn't agree on this or that. And so, you know, it just turned to dust. Yeah. You know, so for me, Frank Zappa is, um, you know, he's an international mm-hmm. treasure. You know, he's essentially... There, there's, they're kind of two separate things, and so I think it's absolutely important that action is taken, and um, to kind of dovetail this in with, you know, the, earlier there was sort of a question about uh, Alex Winter, and you know we've also heard people question, you know, is he a real Zappa fan and so forth, and. My response is that I really don't care because hmm. action, you know, possibility takes action. You know, if everybody's just paralyzed with, you know, well, does he have enough cred? You know, is he credible enough? Look, here's a guy who's raising money, who's taking action, and um, I just think it's better to tr- to try than to just sit there and bicker about whether somebody's, you know, a, a, a real enough fan or is going to make a good enough movie or is spending the, way, the money the way that, you know, I want. I just okay. say, you know, he's taking the initiative, you know, give him a couple bucks and, you know, right on. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Plus, he, you know, at the end of the day, He's an acclaimed documentary filmmaker, and there aren't too many people in the Zappa fandom that are acclaimed documentary filmmakers. So, you know, am I wrong about this, guys? When we interviewed him, he did seem like he was reasonably knowledgeable. Well, let me just interject. I don't, I don't mean to say that I doubt that he is. A- oh no, 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 no! I de- I wasn't taking it that way at all. I'm just saying in general, he seemed yeah, he-, he seemed quite knowledgeable, didn't he? Yeah, he brought up that whole Chunga's revenge test. I mean, he wasn't talking about the peaches and regalia test, you know? Well, yeah, because I mean, anybody can pass the peaches and regalia test. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, he, to me, he showed that, and then stressing Yellow Shark and its importance. And, uh, yeah, I mean, to me, he, he passed that, and his enthusiasm was seemed very sincere. Well, that's it. And, Andrew, you've been, um, you've, you've also been monitoring the, uh, the naysayers a bit, and yeah. Look, I mean, yeah. You say this, there are people who are saying, "Oh, well, he, well, he didn't know about them being into uh, Saturday Night Live episodes, you know, and things like that." It's, it's just nitpicking, really, isn't it? And he, he himself yeah. says, "Oh, he doesn't know everything. He's going to spend the next four years learning even more about it, Frank. You know, just his his, his uh, knowledge will increase over the next few years, and he's eager to do that." Um, yeah, and what what is a lot of the things that have been attributed to Dweezil in particular, mm. I, I haven't seen where they've originated from. You know, Dweezil, as far as honours were aware, has just said, well, you know, I'm not involved in the project. And that's basically it. All these other things, this let, lawyer's letter, who knows where that came from? 
Yeah, I'm I'm wondering about the lawyer's letter. Like, do we know for for certain that that's legitimate? Huh. Oh, interesting. I, I mean, I would I would say that who would go to to such great lengths to to fabricate it? But then again, we we're Zappa fans. We are a unique breed. So yeah. Well, in that case, why would you do it on the last day of the, uh, the Kickstarter? Um, my theory there is that if if we recall chronologically, it was what one maybe two days before that the story took wind that. It was the most money raised for a documentary on Kickstarter to date. Yep. So I think that's that might have been the insult to injury there. Well, it might be, but as we've said, it's none of our business, really. No. We're all on board. We're all on board with the project. We want to see the vault saved. Yeah. And uh, Alex seems like the best, yeah, the best the best hope we've got for that to happen. I think Andrew's. I think he's the Alex is the right guy for the job. I mean, I just don't see anybody else. Like they said, you know, nobody else is stepping up to the plate, and well, you can't wait for everybody to agree on the, the perfect director. I mean, yeah, you you have to take what you can get, and he's he's definitely, ha, you know, has plenty of credentials and he's serious about it, and so I, I just feel very strongly. Just people should stop whining and. Uh, you know he's going to do his thing whether they're whining or not so once again that's why I say I don't really care as long as the thing isn't undermined uh, to where it doesn't happen the internet can can be the internet you know if they're moving forward and saving the vault and making a documentary uh, you know Frank Zappa I think is an important enough artist that if the vault gets saved uh, there'll, there'll probably be other documentaries even if this one's really good yeah, the way it is. and I think that um, no matter what, I mean, this was the thing, you know, this was kind of Gail's, I, I guess, for lack of any better way to put it, this was sort of her dying wish for, for the vault to be preserved, and uh, um, I mean, we've all had our, you know, I mean, people have had, plenty of people have had issues with Gail, and, you know, it's not really our place to, to go into all that stuff right now, but... Um, you know, listen, this was a project that she approved, pro- the last project, in fact, I, I believe, that she approved. And, uh, you know, it is a legitimate project, and I, you know, I believe that it's going to come to fruition. I mean, I've seen silly things like people saying that, well, the money's going to go now to financing a Bill and Ted 3. Did you guys see that? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, a million dollars. Oh, that's gonna. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna invest a million dollars into the making of a Bill and Ted three. You know what I mean? So it's just you know you you need a considerable amount more than that to make it work. So maybe the Bill and, maybe the Bill and Ted will have the alternate soundtrack to the Fly. <laughs> I would love that actually. <laughs> But I mean, I think you know. I I don't know. I just I find it so sad, in a way that um, you know. Well, there was a. It's fully. Um, it's all gonna. I'm sure it will all calm down and resolve itself. Yeah, it'll blow over. What, what what's what's the podcast called? WTF. The, yeah, Mark Marin. Mark uh, Marin. Mark Marin. Yeah. Yep. So I recently listened to a Mark Marin podcast with Moon on there, and she 
she seemed to make it pretty clear that I, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but it basically sounded to me like she had disdain for the music. She really? Specifically said, well, there'll be a lot of happy 12 year old boys who can, you know, nerd out on that or whatever. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's my interpretation. I'm, I'm just kind of paraphrasing. I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that if people are listening to this and they're actually curious, they should go to the source and just, um, you know, you'll get a sense of, of who she is, who Dweezil is, who Amit is, and you can kind of draw your conclusions.
Gentlemen, watch Ruth all during our program. Ruth has been thinking, What can I do that'll be fantastic? Something nice for the camera. I hope Ruth show him a little something.
And that's our show. But before we go, I give you a list of the couple of musical selections that you heard in this particular episode. We did a lot of talking, so there isn't quite as much music this time. But we heard Dead Girls of London from the L. Shankar album Touch Me There, 1979, featuring Frank Zappa and Ike Willis on lead vocal. We heard the Black Page number one from the Zappa in New York album recorded at the December 1976 shows at New York's Palladium. Drowning Witch, including Sleep Napkins from the Late Show at the Paramount Theater in Seattle, Washington on December 17, 1984. And then we rounded off with Echidna Zarf and Don't You Ever Wash That Thing from the Roxy by Proxy album recorded at the Roxy in Los Angeles, December 1973. That's our show. Thank you very much for listening. The Zappacast was produced and edited by Scott Parker, Andrew Greenway, and Scott Fisher. Be sure to check out Andrew's website at www.idiotbastard.com for all the latest Zappa news and also to purchase Andrew's book, Zappa the Hard Way, the definitive account of the 1988 Frank Zappa Broadway the Hard Way tour. For those of you interested in obtaining my Zappa books, my website is located at www.spbpublishing.webs.com and if you order the books directly from me, I'll sign them for you. My books are also available from www.gnsmusic.com, purveyors of the finest Zappa merchandise anywhere, as well as www.amazon.com and many other right-thinking booksellers. And for more information about Scott Fisher, you can go to fishersflicker.com. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R-S-F-L-I-C-K-E-R.com. Scott is a very wonderful musician and songwriter, and you can check out some of his music at that website. If you wish to contact us, drop us a line at MOI1969, that's 1969, at SNET.net. On behalf of Andrew Greenaway and Scott Fisher, this is Scott Parker saying thank you again for listening. And until next time, good night, boys and girls. Thanks a lot. Good night.